0: Public health is all around us, yet difficult to describe. Most people have no idea what we do, including my parents. Our podcast, Viral, is a heartfelt and probably half-baked attempt to understand public health through history, humor, and harrowing stories from professionals in the field. We wanted to create a cozy corner for public health nerds to listen and laugh with us as we try to describe a field that is constantly changing and adapting. Welcome to Viral. Today's episode on Viral is about public health and propaganda. Later on in the episode, we're going to talk to Jennifer Wright, the author of Get Well Soon. So, propaganda.
1: Yeah.
0: It has... Such a sinister and slimy feel to it. Hmm. When I think of propaganda, I think of state sponsored televisions telling a controlled public that everything is gonna be okay despite the chaos and hopelessness in the streets.
1: Fun stuff.
0: Yeah. Is that kind of what you think of?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's... I think of uh, loose lips sink ships.
0: Ooh great segue so how could something so villainous be linked to the altruistic field of public health that's what we're here to explore today so how do we define propaganda miriam webster defines it as the spreading of ideas information or rumor for the purpose of helping or injuring an institution a cause or a person Propaganda originates from Latin to propagate, which is not surprising,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and was first used in religious context by the Catholic Church.
1: How come everything is first used in a religious context?
0: Mm, good question. Not really sure about that. Uh, in 1622, Pope Gregory XV established the Congregatio de Propaganda Fide, or the Congregation for the propagating, for Propagating the Faith to further missionary activities of the church it wasn't until the 19th century that this term was used for ideas and political causes so luckily the us national library of medicine has a great compilation of historical audiovisuals in its history of medicine section on its website so when i started digging into kind of the intersection of public health and propaganda i found i found a lot especially when it came to public health and war, which is actually the name of the section that I found a lot of my information in. So in this excerpt, different marketing and visual campaigns are discussed during wartimes. With the invention of film, many public health professionals wanted to harness its power over the masses. In 1910, a film about the dangers of flies was a part of a larger British campaign to educate citizens. This sparked other film campaigns across Europe that addressed topics like alcohol abuse, clean water, and food contamination. However, some critics felt that these campaigns were problematic. In 1918, Everett and Mark Rutzan, public, prominent public health marketers, said of these films, the propaganda value of the motion picture is both very considerable and overrated. Oof. Is, right. It is unreasonable to expect results merely because people like motion pictures. They also critique these films for their inaccuracy and lack of credibility. This begs the question, if the end goal of a public health message is altruistic in intent, does it matter if the content is correct?
1: That's a good one. Right? I mean, I I would like to say yes, because... It's going to backfire on you if you're putting information out there that is incorrect or false or misleading. Even if it has good intentions.
0: And what about if it has the intended behavior change? Like what if the actual behavior change happens? Like more people cover their food so that flute, so that flies don't, you know. Uh, well, a
1: common strategy is using fear to mm-hmm. to try and get people to change behavior. But...
0: The it's less, model.
1: yeah, but it's less effective than you really think it is when you go through and you read the evidence, um, putting scary images and of diseased lungs on the back of cigarette uh, cartons that actually people will just find a way to cover it up and they don't necessarily change their behavior. There's a small change with people who there's like a very small change with just people who are susceptible to that but it doesn't completely eliminate the behavior.
0: Right. And I think that you know going back to the credibility piece, you know public health institutions are built on credibility and credibility credibility is what builds trust with the public, right? So even if one campaign had the intended, you know, if the intended result actually helped people, but the information was incorrect and misleading, you know, you're talking about decades of, you know, mistrust from the public if they find that out. And obviously we have many examples of that in history, right? The Tuskegee study, all of that. So um, so anyway, I think that one of the most prominent examples of the intersection of public health and propaganda um, was World War II.
2: What do you mean, sir? I mean you don't know a thing about syphilis, except that you've got it. you take a look at the enemy before we start dropping bombs on you.
1: A couple of years ago, I would have been embarrassed if anyone had mentioned syphilis in my presence. Now I realize that I was just shutting my eyes to a very serious condition. Henry, you've got our figures. Out of every thousand men who appear before this board for induction, we've had to reject 41 because of syphilis. At first, we
2: thought there must be something wrong with this district, so we wrote to the Selective Service Headquarters in Washington. Tom, tell them what headquarters wrote back.
0: The national average is
2: 47 able-bodied men rejected for syphilis out of every thousand examined. There are some states in the Union, however, where the average is as high as 170 men rejected for syphilis out of every thousand.
1: Thank you, gentlemen. Stackling, staggering, isn't it? Now let's visit an army hospital.
0: I'm sure many people have seen these posters warning against the dangers of venereal disease, right? Like, mm-hmm. kind of re- loosely, li- loose lips sink ships. Sort of. I guess that's more intelligence-based. Yep. But... When
1: you are uh, portside and you go talk to a special lady who you meet in a bar, don't tell her why why you're there.
0: <laughs> and maybe wrap it up. I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Um, but they didn't just talk about venereal disease. They talked about the spread of germs and malaria. Um, and if you haven't seen them, check them out. Um, the artistry and the cultural context. Read Sexism is astounding. Um, Seizing on the wave of patriotism, collective war efforts, and the awe of scientific and technological advancement, as well as better funding, public health organizations created and implemented national disease prevention campaigns. What a time! Yeah. (laughs) During this time, coupled with radio segments, plays, lectures, and exhibitions, these campaigns urged U.S. citizens to create a more perfect America through better health and unflinching patriotism and hope.
1: Unfortunately,
0: Mm. the culture and ideas of the time permeated these messages. As discussed before, anti-venereal disease campaigns were rife with sexism. Many posters warned the male audience against loose women riddled with gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. The public health messages were often coupled with protecting national intelligence because loose women were probably also Nazi spies. Mm. We tend to focus on these posters because of how shocking they are in today's world. I think that these posters also give an excellent example of the use of propaganda principles against fighting against disease. While they were trying to help US citizens, or in this case with the concept people and the war effort, which would be the cause, they used powerful social stigma and nationalism to motivate behavior change. So what if the information is correct and the intent is like mostly honest? But the cultural context surrounding the message is oppressive, meaning it stigmatizes another group or is, like in this case, sexist. Is it okay to blame women for VDs as a way to prevent unsafe sex? What Mm. do you think? I mean, again, it kind of goes back to credibility, right?
1: Right. It's a tough one. Yeah.
0: I mean... Obviously, it takes two to tango. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're thinking about it logistically. Right. But, uh, yeah. And in our upcoming epi- upcoming uh, interview with uh, Jennifer Wright, we will talk more about syphilis and kind of the stigma around that. So, um, but yeah. I mean, these messages were really powerful. Um, I don't know if they really necessarily stopped people from having unsafe sex. hmm they probably more so allowed men to blame women for getting syphilis or gonorrhea or chlamydia, but um, but they were. I mean, everywhere those posters are everywhere, and there and there's so many examples online. It's it's amazing.
1: And I'm sure that messages like this have dated back even before um, we have decent records of them, um, but they all seem to kind of coalesce around times of war Mm -hmm. when you have a great deal of nationalistic pride and um, a sense that in a very utilitarian sense, the good action to take is the one that benefits the whole or Mm -hmm. the the many, Mm -hmm. which is a a very key aspect of the field of public health because the idea is that we want to promote and protect the public's health. And mm-hmm. thinking about the public in a, uh, in a plural sense sometimes means doing things that go against your own personal wants and needs to benefit the whole.
0: Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. And, I and mean, I, there's vaccinations, a Vaccinations, you know, that's case in point.
1: Mhm.
0: was a good example. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's very well said. So here's another instance that I find that I found so uh, interesting. So what happens when public health is used as war propaganda to conceal technological advances?
1: Ooh. Go on.
0: <laughs> I I first read this and I thought, "How?" I mean, how? So There's a great story, and this is from the Smithsonian Magazine that talks about how the British military created a myth about carrots to hide their secret- (laughs) Right, it's totally logical. Um, To hide their secret radar technology from Germany. So everyone knows carrots are a great source of vitamin A, which can help eyesight. However, this was taken uh, much further to, hey, carrots can make you see at night one poster and they had a this poster yep. was awesome night sight can mean life or death eat carrots leafy greens or yellow vegetables rich in vitamin A for night sight night sight get that
1: very night good night sight yeah
0: so they kind of they tried to propagate this myth as a way to cover for the new radar technology being used to detect german aircraft at night However, so this myth actually survived past World War II, but there was actually no indication that the Germans believed this myth. And this is coming from John Stolarzik, who is the curator of the World Carrot Museum. And yes, there is a World Carrot Museum. Oh, man. I'm adding
1: that to my list of places to go.
0: Right? Book those tickets. So... Public health promotion and communication has transformed since its its inception. Technology, culture, and historical events have shaped the artistry and message of many public health campaigns. These campaigns can be a unique lens into the social and health priorities of the time. It is important to understand the scope of these campaigns, not only to understand their historical significance, but to ensure that standards and parameters for communication are created to prevent them from turning into propaganda. But what exactly makes them propaganda?
1: Yeah, that's what I was about to ask. Because yes. what's the difference between just uh, drink more milk to have stronger bones and the propaganda posters that we that we look back on in history?
0: So I don't think that the answer is really that simple. Because if you look back at what the definition of propaganda is, right? It's the you know. Um, Okay, let me see if I can find it. The spreading of ideas, information, or rumor for the purpose of helping or injuring an institution, a cause, or a person. I mean, that's pretty vague. But if you think about it, a lot of public health messaging is very close to that, right? We're,
1: but it, it has a specific purpose to either promote or damage an institution.
0: Or cause, or, or a person.
1: Okay, so never mind. So... But it's not to promote a behavior. Where I think that, I mean, promoting a behavior is a piece of of what they want you to do. But it's not the end result. So with propaganda, they want you to um, have safer sex practices in the in order to help us win the war. Right. Whereas I think now it's. Um, vaccinate yourself and your children so that you can live a longer and healthier life and right. that you can protect those around right. you because right. we're also not in a time of of war even right. though we technically are but yeah. it's a it's a sort of different nebulous war
0: right well and i think that what differentiates propaganda from just social marketing or health communication is that, you know, a lot of, obviously, like you just said, you just stated, is that a lot of times propaganda has a hidden agenda, right? So, and or a lot of- Maybe not, they're
1: not telling you all the facts.
0: Right. And it's political in nature. And I think, okay you know, one of the things that public health uh, campaigns really try to do is to take the politics out of, I mean, and not not always, right? I mean, sometimes we have to educate policymakers about the health priorities of the time, but that doesn't necessarily make it i guess political or, right yeah hmm. so um, but I, I i think it's really interesting that you know even you know around the turn of the century public health professionals recognize the power of film and the the power of um, patriotism you yeah. know the, those are very um I don't know, influential tools when trying to deliver a message in such a broad way. But again, I think that you have to be very careful how it's framed, the information you're using, um, and what your your intended behavior change or what you want to educate with as a motivator or just to bring about awareness. You know, you have to be very careful on how you put you have to be strategic in how you put that together, or I do think it falls into what could be looked at as propaganda, right? I mean,
1: yeah. so why do you think we don't see uh, a good deal of propaganda being used? Because when you think of propaganda, you think of the authors of propaganda being a state. Mm-hmm. So the the state is releasing this, and. Um, even though, you know, the United States has, has existed throughout the, you know, the history of, of propaganda that we've talked about, we don't see that kind of propaganda anymore. Um, we see it in other places though, like in, in China, we see those Mm -hmm. types of Mm -hmm. messaging in Russia, but not so much in the U S where it's your patriotic duty to get the flu shot. It's your patriotic duty to do this. Uh, we don't really see that type of thing anymore, and I wonder why.
0: I wonder too, but I also, I you know, just spitballing here, I think that at least in the last, I don't know, five to ten years, I've seen a lot more um, anti-intellectualism, anti-government sort of messaging, and I think that anything that, you know, like, let's say the CDC were to put something out where it was, do something that is linked with doing something for your country. You know, I mean, I know me; I'd be all, I'd be all about it. Mostly because I work in public health and I understand the intent. But some people may look at that as, oh man, you know, the government's trying to get us to do something, trying I to wonder, control yes, us. Yes, and- exactly. So, I, I kind of, I also think a lot of it is funding. I mean, I hate to say that, but that's probably a lot of it. We don't probably necessarily have the same funding streams you know, as before, mm-hmm. um, to fund something like that, but. Um,
1: you know, it's one of those things that you think is in the past, um, when really it exists today, it's just taken a different form.
0: AKA the internet.
1: The internet. Yeah, yeah. but that's, you know, kind of a totally different topic. Um, yeah. It's still using images and, and messages to influence behavior
0: definitely even just on the topic of like natural things or healthy things oh, and the marketing get me started of that on natural. <laughs> but hey that's why we have social marketing because we want to harness those you know skeezy marketing principles for the
1: for good today's episode is brought to you by social marketing <laughs>
0: <laughs> we're not skeeze <skis> balls
1: <laughs> we're not skeeze balls
0: we do things because we're good people hey
1: that's a that's a pretty decent message right there
0: yeah, we should really do a PSA. That'd be a great ad. We're
1: not skis balls.
0: <laughs> That's just my motto.
1: <laughs> I try to live my life. I ask myself, would a skis ball do this? If so, I do not do that thing.
0: <laughs> W-W- Paraphrasing S-D. Dwight Schrute. What would skis ball do? That's right. Oh, jeez. All right, so the next segment of our episode is our interview with Jennifer Wright, author of Get Well Soon, and...
1: I love talking to her. Yes. She was great. Yes, she I was think great. you're really going to enjoy this interview. She is funny. Um, she's witty. She uh, has a fascinating book that I totally recommend everyone go out and read. Yes. If you're interested in the weird, gross history of public health.
0: Which I'm pretty sure you are. If you're listening to this... You probably are. Yeah. I hope you are. So enjoy.
2: Um, yes. So this is really cool. I'm excited yeah. about your second podcast. Who was the first podcast?
1: Well, actually, the first guest is, uh, Dr. Alfredo Morabia, and he's the, uh, editor for the American Journal of Public Health.
0: Yes. Yep. Oh, and that sounds fantastic.
1: He is a public health historian.
0: Yeah. His, uh, his focus is on epidemiology, okay. I am very impressed by him already yeah, <laughs> no he's he's really great and he's just um he's just a giant nerd, which is so interesting to talk to him. I mean he's just a wealth of information and and being the editor in chief you know he's uh yeah, he's just got a lot of great insights on you know the historical context of public health as well as current events, which is really exciting so
2: Oh, that sounds fantastic. I strongly yeah. believe that a nerd is just anyone who cares about things and is passionate. So, uh, yes.
1: so yeah, this sounds like a really wonderful nerdy podcast to be doing. Well, thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: Well, um, we just went ahead and hit record, so we're recording. Um, I might right. as well go ahead and uh, give you a quick introduction. Um, Jennifer Wright, she is the author. Uh, her debut book was titled It Ended Badly, 13 of the Worst Breakups in History. Her second book just came out on February 7th and is called Get Well Soon, History's Worst Plagues and the Heroes Who Fought Them. She also writes for the New York Observer and the New York Post and is a founding editor of thegloss.com. Jennifer, welcome to Viral. Thank you for having
2: me.
0: Yes, thank you so much. Um, so we're just gonna kind of jump right into some of our questions. And um, yeah, we, we both got a little bit of a glimpse of, you know, your book, Quinn bought it, and we both took a, a stab at reading it, and we just absolutely loved your candor and your sense of humor in the book, which is great, because a lot of times people, I think, hear public health and they think, oh gosh, boring data, you know, medical stuff, but it's totally not that way.
2: It is my goal with all of my books to make people talk about history the way they talk about the fact that Beyoncé is pregnant. So um, yes. so I try very hard to make sure that we're approaching it in a very human way that shows that there is a lot of humor to be found in these topics. There are a lot of ridiculous things that humans do, like recommending that maybe people who have tuberculosis would like to go off and be alligator hunters. Right. Uh, so, uh, yes, I try to write all my books as if I am telling my friends the best part of what I learned on a road trip.
1: And what I like about it so much is that it's very accessible. And and your writing is... Um a lot of people can understand it and be able to relate to it.
2: I hope that it will be kind of a gateway drug to history and some of these topics for other people.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) Yes, I love it.
1: And I love the book, and I'm a little envious because you got to basically write the book that I want to write someday. So, <laughs> oh, don't worry. There are a lot
2: of other diseases that oh. I had to leave out of this book. Absolutely. You'll see that like malaria didn't make the cut. So don't worry. Ooh. You can do 13 more.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, it seems like it. Um so, why why exactly did you choose this topic? I mean, we know that, you know, previously, uh you do a lot of stuff with uh sex and dating. So, it seems like a big pivot. Yeah, you know, people always
2: say that and it doesn't strike me that way at all. Um I think that if you listen to the things that people gossip excitedly about, they're all either people getting ill or people having romantic relationships. Sure. So, so I true. think sex and death are the two things that consume the human imagination. Yes. And I um I like to write about the things that worry me and the things that are keeping me awake at night. So for a lot of my early 20s that was oh my god what if i just keep having breakups and um i die alone and i'm eaten by my cats
0: <laughs> um, we've all
2: been and, there. we've all been yeah, there. no um, and um i, I am yeah. getting married in a few months so what i guess is that? that is less of a concern now um yes. but during the Ebola outbreak I uh, was checking the news every day, and the news every day said, well, Ebola is coming to America, and it's going to kill everyone. So I was... Very nervous about that, as I think a lot of people were, and I started reading a lot of books about what people have done when confronted by plague in the past, and what were tactics that worked, what were tactics that didn't work. Um, This book was originally going to be titled How to Survive a Plague, until I found out that there was a wonderful documentary about um, fighting AIDS by the same title. (laughs) Yes. Um, so uh, yes, this, uh, book stemmed out of my own fears about the Ebola epidemic that, um, never turned out to be as warranted as some newscasters seemed to think that they would be at the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, we also just cured Ebola last week. They've got a vaccine now. That's crazy. People aren't yeah, talking about, about that you. enough.
0: Yeah, no. Well, I mean, with the... Many other things that have been in the news lately. It seems like something like yeah. that would get buried, but, uh, yeah. which is terrible, which is terrible. Um, and another reason we're doing this podcast, so we I can know have another uh, voice. Yeah, it
2: is said to think that things are so bad right now that Ebola doesn't doesn't even
1: register.
0: I know, right? Yeah. Oh.
1: Well, and I think having a, a lighthearted tone is important. When you sit down to read a book about leprosy, cholera, tuberculosis, smallpox, uh, and plague. Well,
2: I mean, one of the um, one thing that was maybe my favorite finding in the course of researching this was, I think it's in the smallpox chapter that we talk about the Spaniards just brutalizing the native populace of America when mm-hmm. uh, they came over. And I found this wonderful anecdote about um, the Spaniards being about to burn a native american and telling this native american that he should convert to christianity before he's burnt so he can go to heaven and the man replies well are there any spaniards in heaven and the spaniard said yes there are many and he said i am going to try the other place (laughs) 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 so if you can make jokes right before you get burned at the stake i think you can make jokes about anything Oh, no, for sure that's very true
0: <laughs> that's, that's so great i i will say i particularly loved your um chapter on syphilis i'm a i am very interested in sexual health so i absolutely loved um how you talked about the stigma around around syphilis which is Crazy because like you said, everyone basically had syphilis. They all I mean, had it, syphilis. They all did. I mean
2: yeah.
0: everyone. I yeah. Mean,
2: it... Um I don't know if you've read um Upton Sinclair's short story, The Doctor's Dilemma, but it was just such a delightful story to find that mm-hmm. was um I don't know if No, everybody does not know the plot of The Doctor's Dilemma. I will describe it. Um, It was about this man who, you know, is a young Victorian man. He has a mistress and contracts syphilis, and goes to his friends to talk about how maybe he has syphilis, and his friends are all like, oh, no, nobody gets that. Like, can you imagine if you knew somebody had that? You wouldn't even want to shake hands with them. Yes. And it just struck me as such a parallel to what we still see during outbreaks like AIDS, when people were legitimately afraid to shake hands with people who had AIDS. Or the kind of, uh, I think, vaguely ridiculous panic that people still have about herpes herpes isn't going to kill you like it's going to be uncomfortable um but uh, i think fears about how awful it would be to contract herpes are blown somewhat out of proportion compared to everything else people have contracted in history for
1: real and actually our first topic on this show was public health and superstition and we talked about um Everything from the origins of saying, bless you when someone sneezes, um, (laughs) goes all the way back to when, uh, people had the plague and you wanted to, there was nothing really you could do about it. So I guess we can pray for them and, uh, how people used to be afraid of night air.
2: Yes. Well, the miasma theory is something that just hangs all over history for such a long time, right up until mm-hmm. John Snow really disproved it during the cholera epidemic. This notion that if you smelled anything bad, that was disease getting into your body.
0: Yes, so, exactly, yeah. So,
2: yeah, um, my favorite uh, crazy thing that I guess worked uh, during one of the outbreaks of the Dancing Plague, which was probably an outbreak of mass hysteria, priests would open up people's mouths and scream into their mouths, <laughs> out, out, you cursed spirits. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, I guess that maybe worked, uh, but only if you are suffering from a psychological malady. Yes. Very true.
1: And I tried describing the dancing plague to a friend of mine who is a dancer. And she goes, well, actually, that doesn't sound so bad. And then I said, well, actually, they danced until basically their feet bled.
2: Yep, their bones were sticking out of their feet. They were oh. having heart attacks. Yeah, but if your friend's a dancer, she probably knows the story of The Red Shoes, or um, which is this beautiful um, movie from, I think, the 1950s about – a dancer who you know sacrifices love so she can have this beautiful career in dance so it's um it's more beautiful in its metaphorical incarnations than it is as an actual disease in 1518 the people of strasbourg started dancing and couldn't stop and the most amazing thing to me about that disease um isn't obviously that it's uh it's very bizarre and unexpected but the fact that everybody in this community that had very limited resources worked really hard to allocate all of those resources to helping find a cure for the dancing plague um mm-hmm. first they had professional musicians come in so that people could like dance it out. And then when they found out that that was not effective at all, um, they started putting restrictions on any music there. Are these wonderful notices about how you shouldn't play tambourines or drums because that might take away your neighbor's chance of recovery. And this was right at the same time that people were burning witches for much less erratic behavior. So it was really delightful to see that this community didn't seem to think all of the people who were sick were demons they worked really hard to find ways to help them get better and they ultimately sent them to saint vitus's shrine the patron saint of dancers and supposedly the people danced around the shrine and they were cured and again i think that only works if uh you're in a boat of hysteria and you have great faith that something is going to cure you Mm -hmm. but i do think it's amazing that um people were very nice and very concerned about their sick neighbors because that is not a sure thing. Uh, for a great many diseases in history, that is not what happens.
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm a bit biased here because I'm a huge history nerd specifically towards classical history and Greco-Roman era. So I, I really... I really dug into the uh antonine plague chapter and i loved it and it's so fascinating because um, marcus aurelius the emperor at that time was known for his um very calm very stoic um, professional and, and generally good nature towards being the emperor and he knew what to do But he also gave us his son, Commodus, who was a crazy person. fuck, I know. And he also, like, (laughs) was super mean to a bunch of Christians. And so he's one of those really complicated historical figures who is both revered for being awesome and gave us, like, a bunch of terrible things also.
2: Yes, uh, the common Roman saying "throw the Christians to the lions" evolves during this period when Christians were blamed yes. for the Antonine Plague. Now, look, Marcus Aurelius had a lot going on. He thought Christians were over dramatic and too willing to be martyred. I um, I think in the illogical books that you find from the period like Fox's books of Mar- Book of Martyrs. Uh, I will say that Marcus Aurelius is an actual demon because he did oh, let a lot yeah. of Christians die in the arena. No. Uh, but I kind of feel like he
1: the citizens just didn't needed, care.
2: Yeah, the like, citizens
1: wanted their entertainment and he they, took their gladiators to go fight against the Germanic tribe.
2: Exactly. So. It's so amazing to me that people will not Like, they'll panic and become wildly superstitious when a disease breaks out. But the only thing that they will get outrageously mad at the government for, like, write screaming editorials in newspapers about, is when you take away any kind of entertainment from them.
1: Could you Um, imagine if there were, I mean, you know, God forbid a pandemic flu, something crazy mm -hmm. going on around the beginning of the year, Mm -hmm. and they decided to cancel the Super Bowl?
2: Yes. Yes, it would be something like that. Yes, yes. And when they closed the movie theaters during the Spanish flu, which is kind of the exact equivalent of that, people who had, you know, seemingly seen children buried in macaroni boxes and been reasonably okay with it just started having breakdowns. Um, If you take away entertainment from people, they will... Um, they will panic, and they will behave okay. more furiously than they ever will towards the disease itself, so yeah. Marcus Aurelius was pretty smart about setting up new gladiatorial shows where wild animals uh, fought one another, or in some cases ate Christians <laughs> <laughs>
1: but he also when to keep bodies from piling up in the streets, had them taken away and buried, and kind he did. of kept he
2: subsidized society. the cost of funerals.
1: Right, and kind of kept society moving, which yep. you mentioned as being very important oh, when you don't have an actual cure for the disease. Mm-hmm. Trying to keep society moving forward, um, being as normal as possible. Yeah, well,
2: trying to handle a country that is going through those two things is like trying to captain a boat that suddenly has a big hole in it. So you have to simultaneously keep it moving while also... Um, performing triage to get the water that is rapidly accumulating out of the boat. And not many people can do that. And Marcus Aurelius is one rare exception of where he auctioned off his own imperial possessions to raise the funds to pay for new recruits for the army so that Germanic tribes couldn't keep advancing over the borders. Uh, He figured out all just the policy wonk stuff of we can subsidize the funerals, we have to make sure that people don't turn their houses into mausoleums for profit. All of these kind of nitty gritty policy decisions that he was able to tackle very calmly and then you get to Commodus who spent his reign having sex with his sisters trying to get the calendar renamed after himself and having these stupid gladiatorial shows where once he fought an ostrich
1: Yep, and I think uh, he killed, like, a hundred bears in one, where they were all just, like, chained down and couldn't yeah, fight exactly. back.
2: Yeah, he's uh, a great guy. Yeah, supposedly the senators had to, like, employ special methods to stop themselves from laughing. You hear yeah. about senators who were like, we all knew that we had to punch one another if somebody started laughing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, it's yeah. important to remember that, you know, these these plagues and these outbreaks happened... Not in a bubble, they happened alongside everything else going on at the time, mm-hmm. and sometimes influenced world events in significant ways, absolutely, um, yeah, so you know we really enjoyed the book, and we hope that others as do as well and it's hopefully can be that gateway drug to history and to public health and learning about also not just the things that can go wrong and the things that can kill you which there are many but mm-hmm. what we can do about it to to make things better
2: absolutely and i think there's so much we can do and i think every time you see a community that really decides to rally against the disease and come together and not uh, try to demonize anybody who is suffering from the disease. You generally see diseases that get cured pretty quickly. Um, it's when people decide that they can either ignore the disease and maybe it will go away or... um or more often say that everybody who has the disease is a bad person, so we should just let them die. Or in the very rare case of tuberculosis says that this is a glamorous, sexy disease. Wouldn't it be great if we all got it?
0: That was Uh, such a crazy chapter because, yeah, it it was like the new fad. Almost. Yeah. Well, I hope I die of tuberculosis because I will look great. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Super great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, I found one doctor who said that he saw women deliberately trying to contract it so oh, that they, they could do. have the beautiful tuberculosis look where yes. they would be very skinny. Yes. But then you realize that um, we encourage people to engage in a lot of unhealthy behaviors oh, today. so that oh my gosh. All the time. Yep. Yeah. Um, heroin Ugh. chic. Yes. So, yeah, when you read about how the model at the time was beloved for her consumptive look because she was so thin and so pale and looked like a ghost. You can very easily imagine like Kate Moss, um, running through fields in white dresses and looking so slim and pale. And, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of scary to realize that we are maybe not as far away from that as we would Mm -hmm. like to think we are.
0: Definitely.
1: So um, one thing that we want to get in the habit of asking all our guests is, uh, what are you reading now? What's on your bookshelf?
2: Oh, um, absolutely nothing about history until I start the next book. That's fine. Um, I am reading a galley of um, my fiancé's friend's book. His name is Fred Van Lente, and he wrote a mystery called... 10 Dead Comedians that is based off of Agatha Christie's and Then There Were None um with modern-day stand-up comedians. And it's very good. I'm enjoying it.
1: Oh, nice. That sounds great. I like that.
2: Uh, so, yeah, it's a fun murder mystery.
0: I'm, I'm sure that's a nice break after reading about all these... um <laughs> crazy
1: uh people's faces falling off yeah, from syphilis yeah and, i was just gonna uh, say their
0: noses falling off
2: oh or... so many noses falling off <laughs> yeah it's so nice when they're murdered by <laughs> normal reasons
0: <laughs> yeah right right yeah actually on a random note my so my great uncle actually contracted syphilis as an infant because my great-grandfather cheated on my grandmother gave her syphilis and then he was born blind
2: Oh, wow. That is the doctor's dilemma. That's the whole uh, short story. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah, I, it it was, it's so funny. Like we didn't, you know, we talk about in the book, you talked about, you know, stigma and how syphilis was never mentioned, but it was always just kind of this vague, like, oh, well they had like a rash. Yeah. So in my family, it was just like, oh, well, you know. He, Uncle Laverne was just born blind. And then Mm -hmm. when you kind of dug a little deeper, it was like, oh. Because of syphilis. All right.
2: So. Yeah, my agent was telling me that her uh, great-grandfather had a nose covering that he wore when he went into town, and the family just always said, you know, it was because he was a farmer and he worked with cows, and the cows flicked him with their tails, nope. and that caused his nose to rot away. Mm. And uh, now we know that that was probably not the case. That was probably syphilis.
0: Crazy. Oh, boy. Crazy. Well, thank you so much. This has been such an awesome interview. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. And obviously you are a wealth of information and we really hope people enjoy your book. I I don't see how they could. Thank you. I love talking about
2: this. So thank you
0: again.
1: Today's public health fact. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, has a program called the Strategic National Stockpile, comprising the nation's largest supply of potentially life-saving medical supplies For use in a public health emergency. If local supplies run out, the folks who manage the stockpile have several ways of getting medications to those who need them. They can go to any location via truck or cargo plane within 12 hours.
0: Thanks for listening to Viral. This podcast was written and produced by Lindsay Grove, that's me, Quinn Lundquist, and James Schultz. If you like our podcast let us know leave a review tell your friends but most importantly make sure to always wash your hands